The hyperexam in life is where we're constantly looking inward to figure out where we should go outward. We say, you know, am I happy today? Am I happy in my job? Am I happy in my marriage? We're taking our spiritual temperature, our emotional temperature all day long. And we use that as a barometer, as a guide for the directions we should take. You know, I think scripture does call us to examine ourselves, but for what end? It takes us out of ourselves. Am I loving the Lord? It's not like, how do I feel? I think the more we curve in and try to assess our lives based on our feelings, the more muddled we're going to get. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and a Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Lydia Brownback. Lydia serves as a senior editor at Crossway and is a speaker at women's conferences around the world. She's also the author of a number of books, including Flourish, How the Love of Christ Frees Us from Self-Focus with Crossway. Today, Lydia and I discuss some of the common false messages directed at Christian women in our culture. She reflects on the prevalence of depression and anxiety among believers, the importance of discernment when it comes to what we read online, and the danger of the hyper-examined life. Let's get started. Lydia, thank you for being here with us on the Crossway Podcast. It's great to be here today, Matt. So as you look at the, the evangelical church broadly, and, and women in the evangelical church, and your experiences as a woman in the church, and uh, talking with other women, what are some of the things that you're excited about that you, you feel like are ways in which women are thriving? You know, when I see women passionate about the truth of God's Word, uh, and applying that to their lives and wanting to go deeper in God's Word and understand the big storyline of the Bible, that I find exciting. Uh, instead of just sort of going to Scripture for snippets here and there to how to have a better life, how to have a better marriage, uh, women today are, are, are getting more and more excited about God's agenda, His purposes in Scripture. And there, is, there does seem to be a movement of that. Well, what do you think's behind that? Uh, maybe a bit of a backlash to some of the other uh, invasion into evangelicalism of, of so much shallow teaching mm. uh, that we're seeing today, too. So we, we have both going on. And so this craving to go deeper, I do think, is a reaction to so much of, of the... Um, it's not even just shallow, it's wrong uh, teaching that's come in. Yeah. We see it in books and podcasts and articles and websites and even in a lot of churches today where God is sort of co-opted, scriptures co-opted for how to have a better life. And yeah. uh, it, it proves hollow in the long run. Mm. And so then you're kind of getting into that right now. What are some of the ways that you would you feel like women are struggling or uh, are kind of getting off track, broadly speaking? We're generalizing, obviously. Uh, well, when God is viewed as sort of a divine repairman, mm. uh, women aren't going to reverence him. They're not going to trust him. They're not going to, to understand God for who he is. And as a result, they're going to be fearful and anxious. Because how can you trust a God that's just a repairman? And if, he, if his whole purpose is to just be there to help us have a better life, and he's kind of in the background unless we need him to come in and solve a problem, that's not a real God. And so if women are taught that's who God is, they're not going to really have a thriving faith or a trusting faith. There's not going to be any joy in their walk with him because that's a very small God, this, this false God yeah. that people have, have bought into. So that's the flip side of this, this passion to go deeper. And uh, it's, it's this other shallowness that has captured a lot of people. Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned even right there that some of these ways of thinking lead to more depression, more anxiety. Have you noticed this trend in your own relationships with other women as you've counseled them or uh, walked alongside them? And what what kinds of uh, things have you noticed personally? Very much that an increase in anxiety, uh, in fear, and uh, in all the disorders that can go with that, addictive behaviors, all kinds of things. And I think, again, it's because they've been taught a God that's too small. They don't really know the God who is. They're, they're, they're existing under this God they imagine, a God of their imagination. And that God is someone is a God who curves us in on ourselves. And that's the problem with so many, I think, young women today. They, they've been taught that the answer to life is to look inward, to mm. focus inward, when God's agenda for us is to get up and out. And we are called to, to focus on him and then through after that and through that to love other people. But instead, we're hearing through the self-care movement and, and that the only way to get through life is to focus first and foremost on yourself. But that has the opposite effect. Paradoxically, that's, that's what's causing this anxiety and depression. And the more we get stuck on ourselves, the narrower our world becomes, the smaller God gets. And that, I think, is the primary reason why there's so much depression and anxiety. What are some of the main... I guess as you look at even your own life, what are some of the main influences that you see or channels of influence that that can tempt women to look at themselves in those ways? Wow. Well, you know, I do think a lot of it is like never before we're bombarded with material to read. Mm. We have the yeah. Internet, we have articles and websites and and so many of these uh are Christian, or they claim to be Christian and evangelical, and they, they offer how-tos, left and right how-tos. And, and so if you have a problem, you just have to go to one of these sites, put in the search, you know, my relationship's failing, or I'm unhappy, or I'm depressed, and what do I do? And you're going to find all kinds of, you know, six plans to a better this or that. And uh, so then what happens is these women will try these things, and they don't work. So then they say, well, maybe I read it wrong. Maybe I need to find a different one. And they go look for a, a different article. But they're, what, what they're not being directed to are the, are the, the roots of Scripture, the, the truths of Scripture, which are going to take them out of their own problems. That is the answer. So, so it's coming through all the resources that are billed as Christians to, as Christian today. And they don't know that they're not really, truly Christian. Yeah, yeah. That's the mistake because they have that label on them. So much of what's billed as evangelical, as Christian, as sound, just isn't. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you talk about just all the messages coming at women. It seems to me like part of that dynamic is the rise of social media and the internet more generally, where there's just there's so much being passed around all the time. There's so much that can be said by anybody and then shared very easily and very quickly. Do you see social media playing a unique role in in this trend that you're seeing? Huge. I think, you know, those who are listened to most have the biggest social media platforms. Mm. And they're the ones who are retweeted and reposted. And, and whether their teaching is sound or not, their, their, their soundness is based on their popularity. So there's an assumption if, if they have 60 million followers and they're retweeted 25 times a day by everybody who's reading them, so they have thousands and thousands of reposts, then they, what they're saying must be true. So you see this crossing denominational lines. It's just not tied to any one group or church or anything. It's, it's social media and the, someone's popularity there seems to be a measure in people's minds of their soundness. And that's such yeah. a mistake. Because sometimes the most sound people aren't getting a lot of hits. They're not very visible. And so we need discernment to say, what, you know, is this, what does this popularity do to? 
And why is this person so popular? And not just assume that they're popular because what they're saying is sound. What advice would you give to a woman or a man for that matter in terms of filtering through the noise and trying to be as biblical as possible in what they're consuming? You know, the best way is the tried and true way that's always been. And it is to marinate in scripture all the time, every day. And, and just the more of it we know, we develop this discernment that we can apply to the gray areas. You know, I mean, people say scripture doesn't address everything. Well, it really does. And it, the more we're immersed in it and it's shaping us, we're going to understand how the black and white applies to the gray. We're going to get a taste for, for how the Bible works out in, in, in those kind of muddy areas of life that don't seem to, that scripture doesn't seem to speak to. And, and the more we're in it, the more we realize it does address every single thing. And we develop a taste for how and, it, it, you know, it's, it's even if it's not spelled out in black and white, if, if we are immersed in scripture, we will be able to make black and white application to the gray areas of our lives. So it's the same. There's nothing new. There's no new technique. There's no new formula. It's, you know, what it's always been. It's, the, it's scripture. It's the fellowship of God's people. It's prayer. And it's sitting under sound teaching and, and figuring out, getting advice on where that is to be found. And if we're not sure about something, we run it by somebody, an elder or a pastor or someone who's walked with God we really respect. What impact do you think social media in particular has had on the way that women have come to view themselves and, and think about their, the way others view them? Yeah, is it true? We're always measuring ourselves against other people. So when you go to a social media page someone else's and you see their life there you think that's their life mm, yeah. right so so it's no different from the christmas letters we all get and that many of us send that sort of highlight the wonderful things that happened to us this past year and uh you know but no one's christmas letter no one's facebook page is their life <laughs> you know and so you think about these beautiful photos you see and we don't realize the number of takes that someone took to post just that right picture. And you see all these beautiful family scenes of, of you know, people are on a beach vacation and, and, you know, we don't realize the huge fight that family had right before that picture was taken or the fight they're going to have five minutes later. And, and yeah. so all we see is this perfect life. And we look at ourselves and say, what's wrong with me? I don't have that. Yeah. So social media skews reality. And if we look at that all the time, of course we're going to think something's missing. Mm. But no one is their Facebook page. No one is their Instagram. No one is, you know, their Snapchat or whatever the the social media is. It, it's not real. Yeah, there are there are apps now that allow you on Instagram, for example, to actually edit your face to make your eyes a little bit bigger or your lips a little bit bigger or change the color of your cheeks. You know, what kind of effect do you think that has on? on women and maybe even younger women in, in particular? Well, they're gonna despise themselves for what's real. They're gonna to wanna to hide what's real. And because if you, don't, if you don't have to put out there what's real and you put out something fake, what happens when in real life, when you meet those people, when you encounter them? And it's basically saying that who you are isn't sufficient, the way the Lord made you isn't enough. But even going beyond that, it's basically saying I have the right to sort of define myself. But it's an illusion because whatever you're putting yourself out there on social media, it's not the real thing. So another way that people can struggle with self-consciousness relates to their homes. Uh, and that kind of got me thinking about, I think it was in 2011, maybe somewhere around there, this Japanese author Marie Kondo published this book that's kind of taken the world by storm in the years since, the, the life-changing magic of tidying up. And then recently she has a Netflix series now, I believe, 
where she is, it's like a reality TV show where she goes into people's homes and helps them to tidy up their homes and get rid of stuff. And that's just kind of taken off. There's just this fad around uh, some of what she's talking about. What are your thoughts on the popularity of that show and that book? And um, does that does that kind of tell us anything about this this drive towards self-consciousness? I think it can, actually. I mean, our homes are just as much of an expression of who we are as our physical person, right? So uh, in one sense, I think this, this tidying up is great because, you know, they say a cluttered home is indicative of a cluttered mind. And, and uh, you know, I have someone I dearly love is uh, a clutter bug, and it's hard to find space to move around mm-hmm. um, in, in uh, that domain. Uh, and so, and I personally speaking, love to have a clutter-free environment where I'm a little obsessive about it. I mean, I want my glasses in my cupboard in descending order of height, and I want them <laughs> just so. So there's a balance there. So th- some of it is psychological, and it's just, it, I think it's serene to have an uncluttered home. But when it comes into the self-consciousness and like, w- why, what is your motive? And I think that's, it comes down to motive. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing it to be able to create an environment that's pleasing to others and, and, and to, in, in the way of giving them pleasure and loving them, then it's a wonderful thing to do. And if it's helping you to have more mental clarity just by not having clutter all over the place, that's a good reason to do it. But if it's to impress people with your home, that's the wrong reason. Mm. All right, so let's move on to self-improvement. You talk about how we are called to die and not improve. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? I mean, I thought we were called as Christians towards um, sanctification, which is this, this gradual loss of sin and gaining of, of Christ's righteousness uh, in our lives. So yeah, what do you mean by that? Uh, if you think about what is sanctification, it is, it is not us becoming a better us. It is us diminishing and being transformed into the image of Christ. Mm. So in that sense, like, you think about what Jesus said when he said, um, whoever would come after me just take up his cross and follow me. Um, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And, uh, you know, so this is the language of, of diminishing of self. Some of it is even the language that we use. It, that can have an impact on how we're thinking about uh, what this process looks like. Yeah, I think it is the language. And that's some of the problem today. What are we hearing that's shaping how we think about this? Mm-hmm. Words matter. And, you know, people say, oh, do we just, you know, we can be loose about our lingo. We're too hung up on theological T's crossed and I's dotted yeah. and all of that. But, you know, it matters a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the right way to think about goals and resolutions as a Christian in light of what you just said about the danger of being too preoccupied with self-improvement? Mm-hmm. So if we think about it in terms of discipleship, it comes down to the end goal, right? So, so there's something wrong with pursuing good goals, with, with resolutions, with that kind of thing. Uh, but what is, what is the reason? Why are we doing it? What's our end goal? Mm-hmm. Is it ourselves or is it the Lord? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it strikes me that so much of the key is our motives and our heart behind why we're doing the things that we're doing. Yeah. And that requires just a, a God-centeredness that we can't just manufacture on the spot. Getting back to what you said earlier in the very beginning about being saturated in God's Word and letting that direct the way that we think. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're not supposed to think better of ourselves or even worse of ourselves. We're just supposed to stop thinking about ourselves at all. You know, and that's what this whole death to self we're talking about. It's, it's self-forgetfulness. You know, we, we're so oriented on our bodies and our hearts and our minds and even our growth in the Lord. And, like, we're so curved inward. But what would you say to someone, maybe the woman who, who hears what you're saying and, and 
isn't trying to focus on herself, at least not consciously, but maybe just feels like a failure, just feels like she's not good enough, can't, can't do all that she's called to do the way that she's called to do it, whether that's related to being a spouse or a parent or an employee. Um, what encouragement would you give to someone like that? I'd say she's at a really good place because I think not until we get to the end of ourselves and our own resources and where we think we can do it, you know, I, I think once we, we do get to that place of almost discouragement, uh, then we realize that we need to be driven out of ourselves and to quit trying. And it's not that we, it's not that we give up in despair. Instead, we lean into the Lord and we then find enabling grace to do what he's called us to do, to recognize what he hasn't called us to do and put it off. And to be able to find, because he's going to equip us for everything he's put in our lives to do. He's made us, he's designed us. And you think about Psalm 139, how in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And we're told how he knit us together in our mother's womb. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Mm -hmm. Everything about us, every day of our lives has been planned by God to glorify himself. So we have tremendous purpose. And it's not to measure up to our own expectations or those of other people. It's to lean into the Lord and say, I'm too weak to carry out anything and I need your strength. And we think about the Apostle Paul's thorn mm. in his flesh and yeah. how when he pleaded with the Lord, I don't want this weakness. It's interfering with my life. I don't want it. And it's, it's hindering me. And how he ended up saying, what did the Lord say to him? That's, that's, no, I'm not taking that weakness away because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Mm. And then he was able to say, therefore, I will be content in my weaknesses and I, I will boast in them, my inadequacies, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Because see, it's all about the strength of Christ. So I think as we recognize our weaknesses, it is an opportunity, and only then are we gonna have an opportunity to know the strength of the Lord that we wouldn't know in any other way. Yeah, yeah. So let's move on to self-analysis, which okay. seems related to what we were just talking about. So often our desire for self-improvement can come after we've spent time perhaps thinking about ourselves, trying to evaluate ourselves. Uh, and in, in your book, you talk about the hyper-examined life. Mm -hmm. uh, there's that common quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. And you talk about the, the danger of the hyper-examined life. What is that? You know, I think the hyper-examined life is where we're constantly looking inward to figure out where we should go outward. And so we look at our feelings, we look at our emotions, we say, you know, am I happy today? Am I happy in my job? Am I happy in my marriage? Am I being a good mom? Um, you know, how's my mood? How are my, you know, and it's, so, so we're examining our inner life in order to structure our outer life. And mm. it, so that's being hyper-examined. We're, we're, we're taking our spiritual temperature, our emotional temperature all day long. And we use that as a barometer as a guide for what, you know, for the directions we should take. Um, you know, I mean, think a lot of women enter into or exit relationships based on nothing except how they feel at any given time. They change jobs, they change churches, they do all kinds of things because of how they feel. And so we can't use our feelings as a barometer for our lives. Um, it's not reliable. Uh, you know, I think scripture does call us to examine ourselves, but for what end? You know, we're called to consider our ways. We're called to, to take stock of, of things. But it's, it's about, uh, it takes us out of ourselves. Am I loving the Lord? It's not like, how do I feel? Hmm. You know, there's such a difference. So I think the more we curve in and try to assess our lives based on our feelings, it, the more muddled we're going to get. 
What would you say to the person who then hears that and, and makes it sounds to them like you're saying your feelings don't matter, um, your emotions don't matter, you just need to think more rationally about something or... it's a good point. I guess kind of how would you, how do you even personally balance the the value of your emotions and your feelings, but not letting them yeah. you know, take control? You know, that's the, God, God is the one who designed us to feel things. Mm. You know, we're meant to feel the ups and the downs because, you know, he made us feeling creatures. Mm. So it's not that our emotions don't count. They count a lot. But it, they are they are tools to drive us to the Lord. If you look at all the Psalms and how much emotion comes into play in the Psalms, God wants us to take all those emotions, the happiness and the sorrow and the grief and the anger and the, the frustration and the discouragement and even despair. Look at Psalm 88. It's a Psalm of total despair and it even ends on that note. But it's taking it to the Lord and pouring our heart out before him. So, so what I'm talking about is we don't use our emotions to guide and govern our decisions. Instead, we use those emotions to say, I'm in a really bad place today. I'm going to the Lord with this. I can't handle this. I need his help, his guidance, his word. I, I need help. So, so we, it's where we go with the emotions. That's the problem. If mm. we take them to make decisions on our own and say, I'm sad, I want to change my life, and I want to, you know, happiness needs to, my emotional happiness is, is the be-all, end-all idol of my life. So if this thing, this marriage, if this job, if this something is making me miserable, well, that must mean I have to change it, mm. right? So instead, how about saying, I am so miserable and I don't know what to do, and within biblical, within the parameters of scripture, I can't see any any biblical option, what do I do? We go to the Lord, and then he will meet us there. So our emotions are given to us, not to debunk them, not to crush them, but to drive us to the Lord mm, for help. Yeah. So in your experiences as a woman and talking to other women as well, what are some of the common areas that you would say uh, women often struggle with self-condemnation? I think when they have a sexual past, I think that's the worst time. Um, you know, in my book, I use the example of a woman who uh, actually uh, had a child out of wedlock when she was a teenager and then resented that child because of the crimp in her lifestyle it, it caused for years. And so she wasn't very nice to that boy. And uh, he ended up getting involved in drugs and shot and killed as a teenager. And she could never wow. let go of the guilt she felt for how she treated him. This is where the grace of the Lord is so amazing. And if you think about, I think there's such a reason why we have these women with bad sexual pasts in Jesus' family tree, you know? And we have Rahab, a prostitute. Here she is in, in Jesus' family tree. And so it incorporated in there and, and others, you know? So uh, we bring, when we come to the Lord, we're bringing all that baggage. And we're coming, and he washes and cl cleans us so much that, that we are made new. We are, the old has passed away, the new has come. And so for us to hang on to what we did before is to either not see how new the new is or uh, to, to, to refuse to accept it, something in us. It's like if we feel like we need to pay for what we did, mm -hmm. in a way we're not realizing that we're saying that what Jesus did isn't enough. Right. And I want to make up for it. Well, well that death to self again, let go of that because we can't make up for it and we, we, we can't make ourselves feel better by condemning ourselves. It, we have to let it go. And I think that's the biggest thing in Christ. It's not only are we 
free to let it go. We have to let it go. Yeah. What about the Christian who maybe struggled or fell into sin uh, of some kind after they became a Christian? So this isn't just something from their their distant past before Christ saved them and before their life in a local church and all of that. It's it's something that maybe happened recently and uh, something that they're very ashamed of. Like, what encouragement would you give to that person? I'd say the same thing applies. You know what? The Christian life, I think it's two steps forward and one back for all of us, right? And so, you know, we, we're walking. Do we think that once we come to Christ, we're never going to sin again? People can fall into terrible sin. They can backslide. And so the same remedy applies. You know, once we're saved, Christ, Christ, his payment for our sin applies not just for what we did before we were saved. It applies for every sin we're going to commit for the rest of our lives. Like so we can't lose our salvation. So God knows what the sin we're going to commit in July of 2022. You know, and He didn't say, "Well, we'll see how bad that is." You know, so so. But I think the guilt can feel worse uh, if we sin after being like, "How could I have done that?" Well, you know, when we when we say, "How could I have done that?" I think really we don't see it but we have too high of an opinion of ourselves because we think well i'm in christ how could i have done that it's it's a failure to recognize that even though we're in christ we still have sin going on and we need him not just to get us we see him as often what gets us in the door but we need him just as much to stay in after we're in and so we need his grace and his enabling every day of our christian lives that's good that that is a that's something that we so often relegate Christ's work for us to the past. And we don't think of it as a present and future reality um, that sustains us. Okay, last but not least, let's look at self-victimization. This feels like perhaps even one of the the trickiest and most sensitive issues that you address in your book, and especially in our this Me Too time moment that we're living in where we're seeing more and more the widespread abuse and victimization that has happened in our culture. How has the term or the definition of the term victim changed in recent years? You know, and I, I do know this is probably the most sensitive chapter in the book. And, uh, you know, I, I am well aware of that. I think that it's changed in that how we define victim today. Uh, we apply the term too liberally, I think. So where today college kids who hear a viewpoint that, that might, uh, you know, all those trigger warnings that are going to hear something they don't like, they're considered victims of a talk they heard that hurt their feelings. Um, a victim is someone who is at the mercy of what someone else does to them. And so uh, there are a lot, very real, especially in the Me Too time, these are, these are victims. You know, when, when someone abuses their authority and harms another, they have, they have victimized somebody. So you're not you're not questioning the reality of real victims. Oh, not at all. Yeah. What I'm saying is, don't let that define the rest of your life. You know, and I'm I'm speaking this as a woman, um, who who understands what it is to be victimized. I was molested by a friend's father when I was a child, uh, I, you know, or a teenager. You know, and there have been other incidents where there was abuse in my life. But I'm not I'm not letting that define my present. Uh, so I understand what it is to be abused. So I want to be sure to say that. Uh, at the same time, you know, I think today we, we hear about women, adult women, who choose to have affairs with pastors. And they want to be called victims because, well, he abused his spiritual authority and pulled me in. And I'm thinking, 
I would be really careful before calling yourself a victim. If you are an adult in this country, you have the freedom to choose to walk away. And so I think sometimes we want that label because it abdicates our responsibility. So that's who, who I'm addressing here, partly. But I do not in any way want to denigrate the fact of real victimization. And when, when people are abused, when they are taken advantage of, when they are mistreated, and when they are, when they are even emotionally and psychologically beaten down, subjugated to where they'll do things they don't want to do, they are victims. And that can happen to adults, too, not just kids. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's very real. And the scars are there. But see, they can become scars. These wounds can become scars. And if we think about what scar tissue is, it's still there. It's present. You know, it, it's, it's, it's part of our makeup. But it doesn't, it, it's not, we're not aware of it every second of every day once the wound is healed. So I do think that no matter, the chapter's meant to give hope. It's not meant to wag a finger in someone's face and say, grow, you know, quit, quit whining. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to say, if you are a victim of something, then you don't have to let that ruin the rest of your life. You can take that to the Lord and say, this happened to me and it was awful and I don't know how to live a normal life in light of what happened. So I need your enabling to, to not let that define the rest of my life. And in Christ, that is possible. So I'm trying to inspire hope. Yeah. And what advice would you offer other Christians, the, the broader Christian community, as, as we seek to care for people who have experienced this kind of thing at the hands of another? What, what are ways that we can support people like that? You know, I think that, I think that that's, so much good has come out of this Me Too thing and even the Church Too thing, which is just as prevalent now. And it's basically the message is saying this is not okay. And I do think before there has been a sweeping under the rug of things, so women have felt ashamed. And I know that even back in the 70s when I was molested by a friend's uh, father, and uh, so the way that I was told to handle it at the time was, well, we're just going to bury that and not tell anyone because the shame would have been mine. And today, if he did that, he'd be in prison. But you know what? It was just bury it. Don't tell anyone. And so I was just forbidden to ever go to that friend's home anymore. That was it. And that was normal because the woman was made to feel ashamed. So today, this Me Too thing, that has caused a lot of difference. Now it's not okay. It's, and it, we look at these, how these scandals have, it's brought it out. And, and the changes that have happened, even those, even those who haven't done anything to abuse someone, but they have, they have, they have minimized what's happened to others. This is a good thing that's happening. So the church is finally recognizing you know, it's it, it, the people who committed the abuse should be ashamed, not those who mention it. Mm -hmm. So so I think it's to not be embarrassed about it in the church. It's to not sort of like, I think sometimes we're so awkward and uncomfortable that we don't really want to talk to them. We don't know what to say. So if they've put it out there that they've been abused, don't make them feel ashamed. Don't make them feel good. Go to them and just love them and just help them look forward and get up and out of themselves. And, and But don't don't make them feel embarrassed. So I do think that the church acknowledging this victimization that's gone on, it brings it out of the shadows. What, what, what bit of hope would you leave women with? That life in Christ is so wonderful and that if we get out of ourselves and go, get up, go up and out instead of in, we are going to find what Jesus meant by the abundant life. That's where it's found. And so the Christian life and discipleship can, is meant to be, and, is, and we see it in Scripture how all this joy all the time, and we kind of wonder, well, yeah, yeah, that's great in theory, but I don't live it. I don't know it. 
But self-forgetfulness is and getting focusing on the Lord, it is true. It's there. The Christian life can be a joy-filled experience every single day. And of course it ebbs and flows because we live in a fallen sinful world, but it can come to characterize us more and more as we are self-forgetful. We're going to be defined by joy. Hmm. Thank you, Lydia, for spending some time with us today. Oh, it's been a great conversation, Matt. Thanks for having me. That was Lydia Brownback reflecting on what it really looks like to embrace the abundant life that God has called us to. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Flourish, How the Love of Christ Frees Us from Self-Focus, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.